Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and today we have a very special guest all the way from Australia, Karina Barley the founder of Project Autism Australia and Project Autism USA. Welcome, Karina. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, but I'm embarrassed because you're so far away that we called you an hour earlier because we forgot about the daylight savings time change since we booked this, you know? (laughs) That's okay, not a problem. Why don't we begin by telling our Different Brains audience who you are and what you're doing. Okay, (laughs) let me try to reel it all off. Um, I'm an educator. I've been a teacher in, uh, we call it primary, so elementary school for, well, gosh, nearly 30 years, long time. And I'm no longer in the education system, so I went from primary teaching over to special ed teaching, and that's where my interest in special ed and particularly autism grew. I had some children in my classroom who had autism, and they could reel off you know, the scientific names of all the dinosaurs and, and herbs and, and all of that kind of thing, and yet they could not look after themselves in terms of putting their clothes on or and just sort of didn't match didn't make sense to me so I started to you know investigate and wanted to learn more about how I could teach them so my journey began with that about 10 years ago and I then uh, discovered the iPad when it first came out and my imagination was peaked and I really believed that it could make a difference and my principal saw my vision and allowed me to have a full set of um, iPads in my classroom with my kids who had autism. So I had 10 with autism and the differences were phenomenal. So from um, there I ended up integrating, you know, helping the whole school integrate iPads into their classrooms and I decided at the end of the year to actually leave and start my own business and start teaching teachers and then also consulting one-on-one with children who have autism. So my my roles currently are to provide um, professional development for all teachers, both in Australia and the US. I've written, I think it's up to 20 courses now with a variety of autism, special needs and technology based as well. And I've, they've been picked up by a couple of uh, universities in the US and I was just in the US recently and was just seeking to get my courses into other universities, hopefully. And then also I still have my ongoing role as a consultant and I've just got a job last year working at Monash University and I'm also doing my PhD. So there you go. <laughs> I think that covers it all. I think you need another job. I don't know, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I need a holiday. (laughs) You've presented in the United States. You've presented in Australia. Um, To somebody like me who's not well-traveled, what's the big difference between autism in Australia and autism in the United States, if any? 
just from your perspective, I don't mean for a scientific treatise, but, you know, what yeah. have you observed? I think definitely the way that you, um, look, there's good and bad in both countries. Uh, we still heavily rely on our special education system. So we have completely separate schools, you know, that are separate entities of their own. And I, I personally am not for that. I really believe in an inclusive model. And so there's, there is a, a slow move now in Australia to have more inclusive models. So, you know, those children will now go in, be integrated into mainstream classrooms and there's a push by parents to have a more inclusive model. In the US, I can see that, you, you know, you do seem to have a more inclusive model. In, in most of the states that I've been in, I've been in 13 now, and uh, from what I can tell, you know, there are, you're talking inclusion, but when I actually, I've actually had the privilege to attend a couple of your IEP meetings with a couple of parents, and it seems to me, though, even though the children are inside the, the schools, they're really in separate areas, being taught in separate areas. So I think that's the main difference. You know, you both, you look, the US looks like it has an inclusive model, but it still really is excluding children within the mainstream arena for, you know, at least the majority of the time. So... Now, how did you get involved in Singapore? Uh, Singapore is, is, I haven't really had a lot to do with Singapore, but uh, TT, I work for Teacher Training Australia, providing professional development, and they brought Singapore on board, basically. So there's quite a lot of teachers over in Singapore um, who, yeah, who are teaching in sort of English-speaking classrooms and so they take out professional development. So uh, it's, it's a small, you know, it's a small arena <laughs> at the moment, yes. Now, how are your kids doing? My kids are good. I've actually got four children, so but they're my my youngest is twenty one and my eldest is thirty. Um, my children, my you know, and then I've got two in between that. And my my eldest daughter actually lives in the USA, so she lives in Virginia or near DC, and she has two little grandbabies who I just got to go visit, <laughs> and uh, and that did give me a little bit of a break. I, I I was trying to write my PhD, and you know I had PhD cuddle time with a three week old, and you know the cuddle time went over. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good for you. So I'm now, now back in Australia, madly trying to submit my my work. <laughs> the way I see neurodiversity is I see that we're all on a spectrum of sorts, not just autism spectrum, but all the different various types of different brains that we have. And your focus is on autism. How many other conditions or labels, and personally I think labels are a lousy way to describe a unique human being, but how much overlap or comorbidities or whatever you want to call it do you see in your populations there in Australia? 
I think there's an incredible overlap and, I, you know, I've had lots of time to think about this because, you know, I've been teaching for a very long time and uh, both in mainstream classes and special ed classes. And if I look back to my special ed class, for example, one year I had a class that had 18 boys and six girls. And of the, you know, the 18 boys, eight of them had some form of what would be labelled as ADHD or you know, possibly on the spectrum somewhere. And so I had to, I was really challenged by that initially. And then I had to change, you know, my complete way of teaching to facilitate those boys. So, you know, I implemented a lot more, you know, construction type activities. I was in a grade two. So, you know, lots of, lots of hands on. And then I brought in things like some, you know, quiet time after after our because we have recess and lunch play in our in Australia so I brought in quiet time for that as well and the difference that that made was huge so I think there's a huge crossover I personally think everyone is on a you know on a continuum on a spectrum whatever you want to call it I I really am disliking labels more and more although I do for the system, unfortunately, we need the labels for funding, and uh, so it's a it's a catch twenty two. You need the labels because the government won't fund without the labels. But once you label, then you're forced to put children into a nice, neat little box that contains them, and you almost have to make their their um, diversity more difficult than what it needs to be to fit into that label. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's a, it's the double-edged sword. It's the oxymoron. It's the conundrum. It's, you yeah, know, what do you exactly. do? And, uh, yeah. and all of these kids turn into adults. So what's going on in the employment arena down there in Australia, down under? It's terrible, and that this is what was concerning me more and more and more. I was in Ohio last year, and uh, I was it was just I actually walked away feeling sorry. I'm not answering your question very well. I actually walked away feeling a little disheartened because I'm like these kids in, you know, we're talking now where we've got a group of kids now moving into adulthood. So you know, we we understand the statistics. I think in the US it's 1 in 68 now, in Australia it's 1 in 88 children on the spectrum. We're talking about a lot of people who are moving into adulthood with, with you know, minimal skills and minimal uh, ability to be able to go into the workforce. What's happening in Australia from the special ed system is that they go from special ed to a, another kind of special organisation where they're filtered into, to me, mindless, you know, types of activities like working in, you know, sweeping the floors at McDonald's perhaps or, you know, working in a factory. I mean, and so you've got these amazing, incredible minds that, that are autism or are diversity who are, you know, not really fulfilling their potential. And uh, I think I saw a lot of similar things happening in the US. I had the privilege to meet a, a lovely young man in Ohio who was in his 20s and he just couldn't find a job because, you know, there wasn't an employer out there who was willing to, to you know, work with him because he had a lot of trouble listening to instructions and following instructions and, 
He was a little slower than some people, but really clever, brilliant kids. So I think this is a huge problem. And, you know, we don't want a lot of, we don't want all of these kids, one, wasting their potential and two, wasting away on welfare or three, in prison systems and all on the streets. So it's a very big problem. You see, it's, it's my feeling, like as I wrote in a chapter on Aspertools about harnessing the hyper-interest, is to, for us to find the interest and unique abilities in the individual. You know, I've interviewed on Exploring Different Brains some amazing people. Now, would I call them neurotypical? No. Do they want to be neurotypical, these individuals? No. If you look at our interview with Michael Tolleson, an autistic savant artist in Seattle, Washington, who has his own gallery and who mentors nonverbal autistics. He, you can see a video of him, if you Google him online, he does masterpieces he sells for thousands of dollars in between five minutes and 35 minutes. It's just, just does it. It's just, he's a savant. I interviewed another fellow, Ron Sanderson, who's memorized 10,000 scriptures and memorized a bunch of books. And finding, harnessing the hyperinterest, which both of these individuals have, can apply to less unique abilities, if you will. For instance, yeah. if I have an autistic individual who loves doing the same thing over and over with attention to fine detail, Yes, I'll match him with a factory with a conveyor belt and he'll have a ball doing that. And the employer will make more money because he's not going to get turnover of the employees. He might have to give a little bit of help. And this is part of the educational process which starts with embracing the fact that, look, all of our brains are different, you know? And, uh, and uh, exactly. we, we have to do that and, and now. And this is the you know this is part of the this is part of the huge problem though is the education system isn't isn't moving fast enough to meet these to meet particular problems. So, um, for example, in a, in Australia, as I said, we still have you know separation in terms of so the, in terms of schooling. So these kids are going up through the school, so we can kind of you know meet their their particular needs to a degree, but once they get into high school or secondary school, then, you know, we're, what they're doing is more about social skills rather than training them for the future. And I think I saw, some, you know, similar things happening in the US as well, even though, you know, they're being taught in mainstream schools, you're still, they're still not focusing on what their skills and abilities are. And just recently, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a um, Temple Grandin did a, a talk in Austin, Texas, and, and said really similar things. You know, we've got to start focusing on what these kids can do rather than what they can't do. And that's the biggest problem that I see, you know, with educators. They're still, you know, we have to teach these kids how to do handwriting. Well, what if they have dysgraphia, which is the inability to be able to write effectively? Same with ADHD kids. A lot of them have dysgraphia. So why don't we let them use a computer or a tablet instead? But there's this kind of insistence that we have to teach them certain things rather than 
teaching to the individual child. It's a huge problem. Technology. You're, you're at the cutting edge, really, of utilization of technology. Uh, and my thought process is, is that if we embrace technology to work for us instead of us working for the technology mm -hmm. and Absolutely. match it up, match it up well, that's the only way that we're going uh. to bring down the cost of so much of what's going on. And you've certainly been at the forefront of this in your teaching and in your presentations and everything you're doing. Why don't you talk for a yeah. little bit to us, to our different brains audience about technology? Oh boy. <laughs> Nothing drives me more crazy than going into a classroom or, or, you know, going into a school and schools say, we've got iPads, you know, we're doing a great job because we've, we've purchased X amount of iPads. And then I go into the classroom and I see the iPads sitting there. They're still teaching in the way that we taught 50 years ago and then as a reward at the end of the lesson they might let the child use an ipad you know or with a child who has neurodiversity like autism you know they just let them do it instead of doing the mainstream lesson i it, it's they're not using the technology effectively so we need to match the technology to the child and again, it comes back to that differentiation and, as you said, connecting and finding out what it is that they like doing and then using the technology to integrate into the mainstream lessons so that, you know, they're able, we're able to bridge some of those gaps, those learning gaps that they have. So, you know, most teachers don't know that there are accessibility options on the iPad. So the iPad allows you to, there's a whole section where you can, you know, have speak, uh, speak over for text, for example. You can make the text bigger. You can actually even lock the child into specific apps so that they're not jumping in and out of them. And the majority of teachers that I speak to don't actually even know about this, you know, about these options. So, so one of the things that I do in my role as a professional educator is to teach the teacher because teachers aren't, also confident with the technology you know they're, they're, com they're more confident and more uh set in their ways if you want to use that terminology you know in their old tried and true methods and they're not really using the technology to the to the best you know to their best advantage so i think it's um we really need to start using technology in a much more productive effective but curriculum-based way and matching the technology to the child. So, and teachers think that that takes a whole lot more work and then it actually really doesn't. We, I have a really popular course called the iPads in Education course that's available both in the US and, and in Australia. And once teachers take the course, because I actually get them to use the iPad to create lessons and think about their specific students, they, every single piece of feedback has been, I am now so much more confident using this technology. I try, or I tried this with my classroom and it worked. And, you know, it's really just getting teachers to, to use the technology, try it, be more confident, and then they can bring, you know, bring it into and introduce it to their children, so to their students. So 
I, it, it's a, again another huge kind of area <laughs> of concern that we're really not we're still way behind in the technological field. The other thing that really concerns me about technology is that if you think about it, there really isn't a job now that doesn't require technology. So, it, you know, you go to a restaurant and they, they will, you know, take your order using a, a, some kind of a tablet or, or some form of technology. I just met a plumber the other day who used an iPad and a camera to find out where there was a block in a drain. Um, you know, the uh, people who were uh, delivering, you know, parcels and that kind of thing, you know, they use the technology for GPS and all, all that kind of stuff. So technology is, is, you know, everywhere and in every type of position and career options. So the fact that we're not integrating technology as much as we should be is, is to me, a huge concern for education as a whole. Well, I agree with you. We have to uh, we have to utilize it to its maximum. Our goal should be for every student and every worker and every geriatric elderly person like myself, uh, we <laughs> should be maximizing that person's potential for health, happiness, productivity, as much independence as they're able to, and help them out with the parts that they can't. Now, in Australia, do you have an aging out of the system number there where the students get to a certain age and then there's no programs available? Or how does that work in Australia compared to over here in the USA? I don't know a lot about, uh, from what I can understand, once um, high school ends, there's, there's very minimal, there's some welfare agencies that, that assist you know, your more your teens and your early twenties. I don't know a lot about that area, to be honest with you. But in Australia, what happens is that you have to age out of school at eighteen. No matter, it doesn't matter whether you've you know repeated a couple of years or or you whether you're in a special school and you're just not ready. At eighteen, you're maxed out. So then, what happens is that they go over into Various places called there's places called Focus, which, as I said, they they do things like activities during the day. They might do some work experience type activities, and then they they find jobs, which are really usually menial type jobs, uh, you know, for one or two days a week. So, and then most of these kids, you know, stay at home with their parents. So they don't learn independent living schools. There are some really good schools that are uh, one of the things special schools I think are doing well is that they're working on those social skills and living skills and they, they have sort of independent places where you know students can go and stay for a couple of days and get used to all of that but it's it's a complicated kind of mess and there's no cohesive way of that being ha you know that happening in Australia that I can see anyway <clears throat> no, I apologize I don't know enough about the US to because I think it's, it's happening differently in each state, as what I can understand as well. So, yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the one thing, if there is one thing, that gets overlooked in the population that you serve? 
Is there any one thing that you think, you know what, nobody really gets this but me, and that is what? hard to go with one thing but it, the one thing the one problem I see the majority of children having in the classroom whether it's a special classroom or a mainstream classroom is the sensory issues and the lack of understanding of sensory issues you know most and also behavior so matching behavior looking at behavior in a different way what I just wrote a course recently about looking at at behaviour and then understanding from that behaviour as to what is actually going on for the for the child. So rather than seeing behaviour as negative, as, you know, that the child's messing up, that they're being disruptive, that they're being challenging, you know, being naughty for want of a better word, all of those things that we actually look at the behaviour as clues as to what's going on for them. And kids on the spectrum, you know, with neurodiversity, have huge, you know, actually I have huge sensory issues as well to come to think of it. And when I ask my teachers, they answer the same question, you know, too much noise really drives me crazy. So, you know, there's the huge sensory issues and for kids who have, who do have this neuro, who are neurodiverse, sorry, that can cause flight or fight responses. And so we've got to look at behaviour in a different way and look at it as as the clue to what is the problem and then solve the problem and then we have a much calmer you know, student and a much calmer classroom. But I feel like I bang my head against a brick wall, both, and it's not just schools, it's parents as well and even, you know, the whole arena, I'm constantly talking about the need to identify sensory issues in students because I think it's a huge factor and if we can overcome behavior issues then we can get to the real them you know we can figure out what it is that they're good at we can then get them working successfully and confidently and and I always say success begets success you know so it's a cycle you know we we building into them confidence they have moments of success they're more likely to take risks and then they have more moments of confidence and then this and then they have more moments of success and so it kind of goes in this cycle and it's really important that we do that for these because these kids constantly have experiences of failure you know they're, they're not doing it right they're not handwriting their handwriting's bad or they're behaving badly or you know, so they're always coming across failure rather than success. But if we turned it around and understood them more and understood why they're behaving the way that they are and understood that you know, they simply can't write perfectly because their brain's not wired that way, and then we would see a completely different um, student. So, yeah, so that's my one thing <laughs> in a very big nutshell. <laughs> Karina, when people want to find out more about you, how do they get a hold of you? How do they find out more about what you and your organizations are doing? So um, you can email me, of course, karinabali at gmail.com. And then also the um, my uh, website is Project Autism. I have two, Project Autism Australia and Project Autism U USA. They're both kind of linked together. Uh, so that that really talks about me and 
my thoughts on autism and I sort of present a lot of the ideas that we've talked about here. And then I also work for two companies, which is Teacher Training Australia, if you happen to be an educator in Australia, and also Digital Learning Tree, which is you just can go to digitallearningtree.com and uh, you, know, you will see a lot of my presentations and a lot of my work there. And, and, and if you're, you're – so the courses – that I do write are accredited. So uh, when, you know, as I said, we're looking to get more universities on board so, you know, teachers can take the courses and, and, you know, gain some of their credit that they need either for their masters or just for their teaching accreditation. So, yeah, so that's pretty, you can find me there or you can simply just Google me, Karina Bali, and you'll find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook, of course. So, you know, I'm pretty much everywhere. <laughs> if you, if right. you do now a for the uh, for the parents who might be watching this, who have an autistic child, what's one takeaway piece of advice you might give them? Wow, that's a big question. One of the things that I see when you talked about it before, you know, parents parent from a whole range of, of air, you know, a whole range of arenas or a whole range of emotions. And one of the biggest things I see is that, you know, when you get a diagnosis and, you know, it's one that is autism, a lot of parents go through, you know, grief and pain and even shame some people. You know, so what happens is that they start parenting from that place so that you know then they're constantly trying to make up for their kids and and some of your most you know I think enthusiastic parents are parents of you know children with diversity which I love by the way I think it's fantastic that they're passionate and and want to make a difference but I think we have to realize that these kids they might be you know and have they might be neurodiverse or have a new you know, you're not a neurotypical brain if you want to call it that but they're still children you know there's and so you still need to parent as a parent and not from guilt and shame and all of those negative emotions so and then also you you know as while you can listen to experts at the end of the day I think it's uh, Tony Atwood and you've heard of him Professor Tony Atwood in Australia he said parents have a PhD in their child which really spoke to me because they do you know especially when you've been told that your child has a problem parents mostly will go out and research and look at every single thing that they possibly can because they want to do they want to do what they can to fix their child and i think that's fantastic and we need to listen and collaborate with parents as educators and parents though also need to collaborate with the experts as well so it needs to be a really good partnership but one of the things i see is just is the sadness and i Yes, I get it's hard for a lot of parents out there and it's tough and they've got to come against systems and come against a whole range of behaviours and issues and problems and often, often medical, you know, problems as well. 
But if we can parent from a different place and a different attitude, then usually parents do start to rise above, like like you talked about your own daughter. You know, if you believe in your child and believe that they're capable of doing more, then it's most likely that your child will do more. So that's in, in, a, in as big as a nutshell as I can give you. That advice. was a wonderful nutshell. I know you're a little bit nuts. But, <laughs> oh, I uh, have to be, don't I? <laughs> I think well, to do this. That, that's why the most important Asper tool in the Asper Tools book is unconditional love. And yes. that covers a lot of bases. And you've covered a lot of bases here today, really. I thank you so much. Thank you. And we've been talking with Karina Barley from down in Australia where she's doing so much in so many different ways. Um, she's got Project Autism Australia, Project Autism USA. She's a consultant. She's an educator. She goes to Singapore. She goes to the United States. She goes all over the world. And she's doing so much for so many. You can find her at projectautismusa.com. And you can find her at the other places she mentioned earlier. And I just want to thank you, Karina, for spending time with us. And we here at differentbrains.com are glad to try to help you achieve your goals and spread the word as much as we can. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Karina Barley the founder of Project Autism Australia and Project Autism USA. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.